0: This is Linux Unplugged, episode 25 for January 28th, 2014. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's not too big to admit when its own fantastic foot has been stuck in its own amazing mouth. My name is Chris. And my name is Matt. Hey there, Matt. Episode 25, buddy. I'm pumped up because it's it's like a marathon for me tonight. On the live stream, we're doing the State of the Union coverage on Unfiltered. That's like right after we're done on this show, man. It's like it's like uh, big time over here. But not only that, not only that, but I think we got a really good episode ahead of us. We're only going to talk about Steam. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) 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 Oh, we got some Steam feedback, so we are going to talk a little bit about Steam. But every time Steam comes up on any of our shows, there's always the chorus of folks who chose Linux because gaming just doesn't even interest them, right? So it's like not even on the radar. So like when we have an episode about Steam, like oh man. They're talking about this again. I
1: don't like. I don't know if they're like uh, not again. I mean, it's like I think they fail to understand how important it is in the grand scheme right. of things. But we'll get to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah,
0: exactly. I can relate that it's not big to them. That's yeah. why they chose Linux in the first place because they didn't gaming wasn't a huge priority. But oh. So many big things are changing up, and I'm actually really excited because uh, coming up on the show, uh, right off the top here, we're going to be getting into some feedback. And one of the which, I just thought it would be perfect to bring in our guest this week, uh, joining us in the Mumble Room, our virtual lug, as it were, is Aaron Saigo. Now, you guys know Aaron Saigo. He's a longtime KDE contributor. He's also what I like to call a free culture thinker, and he's really the heart of the improv project, and he's going to join us. Hey there, Aaron.
2: Hey, how's it going,
0: guys? Quite good, quite good. Thank you for coming today. Now, see, Aaron uh, page, pinged me on the uh, super secret bat line that uh, <laughs> I like to thank Google because Google makes it possible for people to get a hold of me in all kinds of new ways, <laughs> and including uh, – but in this case, it actually worked out really well. Aaron was able to get a hold of me. Uh, and I, when, he, when, he, when he messaged me, I was actually editing the Linux Action Show. So I was responding to Aaron uh, using the voice dictation because my hands were busy editing. And like, I it, it was doing okay. I mean, Aaron, what would you say? Was it okay? Was it passable?
2: Yeah, it was actually. I didn't know until you actually said, "Yeah, oh. I'm using voice dictation." So, did you just think was... I was
0: like some sort of maniac with the keyboard? Because <laughs> like, there was a few things that just didn't make sense. <laughs> <and I'd...
2: laughs> uh, yeah, you know, got that that filter, that automatic filter that happens, right? Yeah. Where you just skip over all the, yeah. the errors. I, it was actually pretty good. That's good. That's good. So I was like, okay, well, instead of dictating, you know, why don't you just
0: come on unplugged on Tuesday and talk about this? Because you know, Aaron called me out on a thing that uh, after after we wrapped up uh, uh, Linux Action Shows in defense of GNOME, I always kind of think back over the show and, and I critique it myself. And one of the things that uh, I felt uh, was sort of unavoidable for that type of episode, but was still sort of the underlying message in a sense, is that the show was really championing new and shiny. Uh, look at this new thing. It's been rebuilt and it's finally getting to a usable uh, standpoint. It's sort of a celebration of the fact that it's new. And it's 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 been rebuilt in something, you know, that it's almost like a sense of consumerism. That I feel is really kind of pervasive in the U.S. culture, and it's sort of that same sort of mentality put towards software development. You know, what have you done for me lately? And, and when somebody is sturdy and solid and building a reliable platform, then they're boring. But when somebody's rebuilding and starting over, well, then they're crazy because they've just shot all of their functionality out the air airlock, and I'm really frustrated as a user. So Aaron called me out on that, and we're going to talk about that today because I actually think it's a fantastic topic. I, I I've, I've kind of. And coined it as the term of the new and shiny culture that is pervasive on the internet, and it, it plagues open source more so than ever. We constantly see projects get thrown out and rebuilt, sometimes for completely justifiable means and reasons, like uh, potentially like OpenShot could be a good example. I was example about to say
1: OpenShot, yep.
0: Yeah. But then, you know, there's other projects you look at. Unity! Unity! Uh where it's it's sort it was sort of obvious from the onset what they wanted to accomplish was already out there and they didn't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. And when they did, they sort of chose the wrong direction and then now they're sort of facing this re reboot. And I think, you know, when you look at Unity uh, what Unity eight is what's gonna be called, when that comes out, I think users are gonna be shocked with some of the stark differences that aren't there and some of the things that don't work the way they expect after Unity 7's been built up over years and years and years of and, and polish, right? Especially right now as Unity's going through this sort of, I mean, for lack of a better term, refinement phase, while well, they don't really add much to it.
3: And yeah, then we're going to get this big reset. Close.
0: And I think that's going to be a stark uh, comparison right. where you see something start over again, much like when GNOME hit version 3 and started over again. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to do some of our feedback, because, gosh... We got some really great feedback. But first, I want to thank our first sponsor this week, and that is Ting.com. Ting is mobile that makes sense, my mobile service provider. And Matt, what about you? Oh, yes. Look Love at these that. guys. Yeah, this is something that if you're sort of a, a consumer who likes to be informed and vote with your wallet, this is why I like Ting, and this is why I recommend it to my audience. Not only have I been using Ting for over a year, but Ting has no contracts, no early termination fees. And the best part is you only pay for what you use. Now, I'm a shut in. Okay. I don't. I don't like going outside. It's scary out there. There's people, and those people don't know how to drive. True. So for me, uh, it's really great to only pay for what I use. So that way when I do go out and get, get out and have to make calls and or it's the holidays – then I pay the appropriate price for that and it's an incredibly reasonable rate. And when I'm shut in and I'm not calling anybody, like this week after my birthday and I don't want to talk to anybody, then I only pay for what I use. It's actually a really brilliant system. And right now you can go over there to linux.ting.com and save $25 off your first month of service or $25 off your first device. And by the way, check out their rates page. And also check out their blog if you're listening to this podcast in the month of January because Ting is doing an LG G2 giveaway. That's that G2 is that new sweet phone, 32 gigabyte version. It's pretty easy. All you have to do is be a YouTube subscriber on Ting's channel. You have to leave a comment on their new unboxing video of the LG G2. That's not too tough because that's a great video. And then there you go. If you're a Ting subscriber, you'll be entered to win. They're going to pick on January 31st and announce on Google+. So uh, you can go to Ting.com slash blog to get more details about that. You need to be a Ting customer. So if you're not a Ting customer, go to linux.ting.com and get started. Average Ting bills for our, uh, our listeners are usually around $30 per month for a full-fledged smartphone with hotspot, tethering, caller ID, voicemail, all that stuff. I mean, it's a full phone. It's got everything. They also have incredible roaming deals. If you're going up into Canada and things like that, they've got great deals there. I get uh, feedback from folks all the time who are always really surprised at that aspect of the Ting service. And not only that, they have fantastic customer service. You can give a Ting representative a call anytime between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern at 1-855-TING-FTW. And a real human will answer the phone. So go to linux.ting.com to support this show. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Yeesh. That's right. Okay, so let's read uh, Jonathan's uh, post here. I'm sorry. His name is not Jonathan. I was uh, re- reading uh, something else. His name is Scott. Scott James Remnant. I think is Remnant. Aaron, you got, any, you got a vote on how you say his last name,
2: Remnant? Remnant. As far, as far as I know, it's Remnant, yeah. Okay.
0: All right. So he was a previous Canonical employee, and uh, he was one of the original software developers of Upstart. So he has some interesting perspective to share on his Google Plus feed, and I'll have that linked in the show notes if you guys want to circle him. And I'll just read it. He says, The open source and free software communities work on the principle that when I contribute patches to a project, I'm donating my time, expertise, and resources. In return for that donation, I receive the time, expertise, and resources of the rest of the community on equal terms in which they have received mine. I benefit as I benefit and the community as a whole benefits. Certain projects make you sign agreements when you contribute that instead make the terms unequal, You, <clears throat> sorry, usually benefiting just one party. When you contribute under one of these agreements, the community may benefit, but one individual or company benefits more. They receive all your time, expertise, and resources, but reserve the right not to return the favor. I'm a coder in my day job, and I give my time, expertise, and resources to that company. They are not under any obligation to return that favor. In return, they pay me. The CLA is employment without wage, without a wage. The CLA is employment without a wage because it's the same sort of arrangement. I contribute my code and my time, but when you work, you get a wage. So, Aaron, I know you've talked about CLAs in general, and lots of projects have them. You've talked about him for years, though, and I wanted to get your reactions to Scott's post here because as Debian's looking at this whole init system debate, it's really sort of exposed the whole CLA issue that a lot more people in the community are talking about now. And as somebody who's sort of been trying to get this conversation rolling for years, I'd love to know what you think.
2: Sure. So right off the top, I'm not anti-CLA carte blanche. Um, in fact, I helped to bring in a version of the Free Software Foundation Europe's uh, fiduciary license agreement, or FLA, into the community. Um, So I think that there are benefits that can be realized by having formalized agreements that cover contribution. Uh, But I think that what Scott gets at, and it's really insightful, is that there are uh, systems Properties to these agreements, and when you when you approach it from a systems thinking point of view, you do get people looking at it and going, "Well, I'm not benefiting anymore, and therefore I'm not going to add into the 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 system and into the pot anymore." Um, and so, the point that I think Scott was trying to make, and, and really accurately, is that these CLAs intended to grant advantage and and make it even maybe possible for the company. To see a profit or something you know, along that lines um, may actually be having the exact opposite effect that they expect because it shrinks the contributor pool. Um, and the whole point of having source that's open in, in from a perspective of contribution and benefit is you're sharing development and risk. Um, and is, so anything you do to limit that is is defeating. Is that
0: true? Um, you know, if we just kind of look at the success that Canonical has at getting contribute uh, contributions over the years, wouldn't you say that perhaps the CLA is a non-issue because people just want to contribute, they just, you know, they want to follow their passion. The CLA is a non-issue until either the company starts to get big or the company is on the decline. And then all of a sudden these flaws are exposed. But as long as they're on top, everybody's so passionate and motivated that they almost just don't care.
2: Um, I Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the issues is that in the past, free software developers have not been aware of these issues at all. Yeah. And they've made them just with the assumption that everyone's intentions are good, um, and therefore, they're going to create good things. Um, and that's not entirely true, unfortunately. Not that people have bad intentions, but that not everything that's being created is, is good. So three years ago, in 2010, um, I actually had patches... That I got kicked out of a canonical project because I refused to sign a CLA. Things that fixed bugs um, in a project that they had under their CLA, and it was specifically because of reasons like what Scott uh, mentioned, where it's, it's asymmetrical. Um, but even worse, you know, it, and this is really gets where not all CLAs are equal. The CLA in particular that Canonical uses is um, extremely broad and has no uh, termination clause. So you can't tell what it's going to cover in the future because it basically just says anything that they host and they say covered is covered in future is covered. Um, and that right. really, right? yeah, I mean, I couldn't sign such a thing with a good conscience. Um, so it, it does affect, right, you know, in, in the net here and now. And now we look at two other projects, Upstart and Mirror. Um, There are people who are not contributing to Mir. Because of the CLA, I know this for a fact because they've they've said exactly that. Right. Um. There are people who otherwise have no bone, um, you know, contention or axe to grind. Um. Upstart is of course controversial. In I mean, the reason why System D, um, according to um the Red Hat evangelist uh, Jan, and I won't even try his his last name because I always mess it up. Great Dutch guy. Um. He said, you know, the other day on G that one of the reasons System D started was because of the CLA. What about the so what about the al- alternative side though? In the here and now, and it's not just on success or failure.
0: Uh, that does make sense. But what about the alternative side to that? Where, uh, so say you know, for some reason, maybe there was an agreement with a carrier for Ubuntu Touch, and uh, you know they had to flip some code that a lot of people have contributed to to a proprietary license. Uh, what about the argument that? everything that was created at that point still remains open. It's still open source software. It's just there's going to be a fork of it now that has been relicensed, but that, that code isn't taken away from the community.
2: Uh, well, so there's two flaws with that. One is that there are people who engage with free software on ethical grounds. And so for them, the fact that there is a proprietary fork goes against their, their ethical position. Um, I would be one of those people. Uh, But let's just say that we're the weird fringe minority. Um, Once a company can take something proprietary, um, if there is no safeguard in place, there is nothing to say that they won't continue adding to the proprietary uh, code. And then we get either a proprietary fork, we get open core style um, things. And at the end of the day, what you're agreeing to is a asymmetrical relationship where your contributions are not of equal uh, value at the end of the day um, to... Other contributions. And of course, Canonical does say, Marcus said this publicly, well, but we pay for the majority of the development in this project. So we have a moral stand uh, or an ethically backed stand that we can say, well, we deserve to be able to do this. And I, I agree with him. He, if they're paying for it, they they have an ethical position that they can say we can take it proprietary. Is that, isn't the that... result, however, from a systems point of view is people will disengage. So I wonder, though, okay, so explain to me in
0: in your mind how uh, if, if a CLA uh, hinders con- contributions to, say, something like the mirror project, how does it not hinder something like the Qt project that also has a CLA?
2: Right. So I'll say, first off, um, I'm not a huge fan of the CLA in, in Qt. Um, it's there for practical and historical reasons, but there's a very, very important difference. Besides the fact that it's well-defined and only covers the CUTE uh, world, there's also another group or another agreement, um, the Free CUTE Foundation. And this has an agreement with the owners of Qt, and it's actually been passed on from Trolltech to Nokia to Odigio. No and what it says is um, it's a legally binding contract that should um, they... Go in the in into the path of proprietary only, so they can take the free software code and release it under proprietary or, or grant um, proprietary licensing terms. But if there's ever a difference between that proprietary licensed uh, code and the and the free software or open source code. The entire Qt stack is immediately relicensed under the BSD uh-huh. license, okay. which pretty much destroys their business model.
0: So you sort so of have an insurance a, policy, kind of a
2: mutually assured destruction agreement. There, right? It's an insurance yes. policy in a sense. Exactly. Okay. Now, other groups treat it right, and that 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 creates um, a a reasonable expectation of symmetry. Other products do it differently. So, with the FLa and KDE, for instance. There um, is a secondary document that accompanies the primary document that gets signed. These are the only terms under which uh, the organization you're you're entering to the agreement with KDEV is allowed to relicense your software, and it's all free software licenses. You can't take a proprietary, even though the CL or the FLA you sign, um, which is optional, not mandatory. Um, it would, in theory, allow this. And what the secondary document says is that should they, the uh, KDEV, the nonprofit organization, decide to go evil and do this, your FLA is immediately rescinded and void, and they cannot do this. So there's different ways of ensuring um, symmetry. There, of course, one is not having a CLA or an FLA. Um, and, but there are, in, in certain cases, there are downsides to this. Sure. Um, the reason why KDE has one is to allow the, you know, if someone disappears from the face of the planet, and GPL version four comes out, we can move forward with without having them there. Mm. If you die, for instance, that's mm-hmm. the big one. Mm-hmm. Or if someone sues you for, you know, you know, um, some you know patent issue or something that or involves, you involves you murder your wife and go to jail. Too, it allows yeah. the nonprofit organization to represent you. Yeah, go to jail. To represent offense. you. I'm just making a riser
0: offense joke i want i don't want people to think i want to catch that i caught it right away okay all right i just I thought i realized that sounded really uh, creepy out of context well you know well i mean that makes a lot of sense i'm glad i asked because i think that's a, probably a common response that people would have is well qt and other projects but yeah okay yep. there's sort of a give and take in that scenario That makes more sense. Okay. Well. All right. We'll we'll leave the uh, CLA topic uh, at there for now. And uh, thank you, Aaron. And we'll pull you back in 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 a few minutes uh, when we get uh, through the rest of the feedback. Uh, Our next uh, feedback is sort of um, a collection of a lot of comments, several threads in the subreddit, uh, a few emails, and also some posts on G plus and Twitter. Uh, Where, uh, in response to our Steam Streaming Showcase episode on Sunday for the Linux Action Show, uh, Jonathan Houston, who's in the chat room right now, he says, Okay, I'm curious to see what everyone thinks about this. My friend and I have been discussing the implications of SteamOS and the potential impact on Linux. He brought up a very good point on how, um, and I think I agree with him, Valve may have shot Linux gaming in the head! with the ability to stream games from a Windows machine to a Linux machine, as recently demoed on Last, The reason being, with SteamOS developers, we're seeing good reasons to add Linux support. Now they don't need to. Now they can just keep doing what they've always been doing, and some Linux user wants to use their game, they'll just have to stream it from a Windows machine. They've removed many of the reasons to spend money to develop on Linux by shifting the cost to the consumer. Now the onus is on the consumer, and we just have to accept buying a second computer. Not only a second computer, but one capable of streaming the games and programs we want on the machines we want.
1: Boy, you know, I think I would agree with the fact that I think developers will consider this, but I think at the end of the day, the argument can go further and say, well, if they want to play the game badly enough, they'll just go ahead and buy a Windows machine. Yeah. So I think it goes both ways. So I, I re- reluctantly disagree. I, I think that I see where he's coming from, but I don't think that's going to actually, I don't think they'll pull the trigger on yeah, You know on what I say? Out, I say you yeah. take
0: that doubt. Get it out of and here. And you get it out of here because yeah. uh, here's the thing is this is Valve being super slick at this and what this is is this is a transitional technology this isn't like wine this isn't like anything else this is a transitional technology to add value to lower end machines and machines that yet do not play the games that the market demands and it's good enough of a temporary solution that it could be a permanent solution and that my friends is a very good sign for something this early this early in the beta stage but here's the reality you and i we might be up to having an extra Windows machine and even understand with the concept of remotely encoding a video game stream and then sending it to a remote client that can then interpret that, decode it, and then send back the keystrokes or controller strokes in real time. Like, we grok that concept even if it's loosely. Consumers, that, that is an alien idea to them and Valve and developers can never and will never be able to depend on Steambox users having another computer in the house capable of playing video games. Because it's simply too much to expect for the average consumer, for the early enthusiasts, for the people that are going to buy the first generation of Steam boxes, i.e. everybody buying a Steam box for the next year, year and a half, they might have that expectation and they know that they can lean on that streaming to help fill that gap. But by the time the Steam box goes mainstream, a couple of years down the road, there's no way any developer who's going to target SteamOS that wants to actually make some money can rely on that. So they have to go native. Market Dynamics will force them to create a native application because that's what the vast majority of Steam box users will expect. And so it's actually not that bad. And in the meantime, it gives us some really cool tech to play with, like the application streaming. I wish people go watch you – know, we had some people that just chose not to watch the episode because it had Steam in the title. And I think that was a mistake on their part because we demoed some really cool tech. And I, I'm happy that the streaming tech is so good that it makes us a little nervous. And I think this betrays that Linux users have been beaten so many times by a, by a commercial company that just disappoints that now we're were expecting it. <laughs> we're just looking well, for
1: it. And I also think there's confusion on – they say, oh, well, isn't this just remote desktop? And it's like, no, 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 no. This isn't accessing a remote desktop. This right. is bringing that desktop's experience like stream through the po- I mean, yeah, yeah, fully accelerated <laughs> into your own experience to where you might as well be running it natively, meaning you can run Netflix and things of that sort.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, we demoed QuickBooks, Photoshop, Netflix. And what's great about this is, to me, it lets you rip off that Windows Band-Aid, but then not be SOL stranded on Linux Island. Because there's a lot of offices, especially as, I mean, I know I, you can't really expect businesses to do this, but there's going to be enough out there with a savvy enough it guy or gal and she's going to know about steam and she's going to know that hey we need to replace replace windows xp so you know what we can do we can take one nice windows machine and if you're just streaming desktop applications doesn't even have to have high-end gpu and we'll put this in the office and the three times a week that cheryl and larry need photoshop and that bob and rick need to use quickbooks they can do it and it's no big deal and we know we'll be okay because we're no we know what kind of experience we're going to be able to deliver and i think that's a really good thing even outside of gaming so there you go, And it's, gonna, it's coming at a good time when we need some transitional tools. So speaking of uh, things that are coming at a good time and maybe not being ready, remember last week we covered that guy who was sort of trolling Linux users, <laughs> coming up with all oh, of yes. these reasons why Linux was totally mm-hmm. not ready for the desktop. Well, uh, we were pretty hard on that guy, but John writes in, in defense of that guy. He says Linux isn't ready. I, he said, I read through that whole post myself and I have to agree with most of what he said although it was pretty exaggerated. The Linux community should be happy to get critiques like this. This is solid gold user feedback. You couldn't ask for a better feedback. Anyone interested in making Linux into something with potential of replacing Windows should look long and hard about at that post. Sure, he's rude and exaggerated, but so are disgruntled users. Any diehard Linux user would have similar language about Windows.
1: But see, here's the problem. We're, we keep calling Windows Power users the average user. That's the problem we're seeing here. This was someone – and probably the person that did or did initially did the post was a power, was a Windows Power user. This is someone that knows Windows backwards and forwards and installs their own operating system. Yeah, That's not Joe Average. Joe Average doesn't even care as long as they can check their email and surf eBay. I
0: think that guy was kind of in the FUD territory. I mean there oh, was, he was some valid yeah. stuff in there, but uh... – But they, but that shows
1: that he was a power user. So that's the problem is they say, well, it's not ready for the prime time. It's actionably happening right now. It happens at my mom's house. It happens that you have relatives that use Linux. I have relatives that use Linux. I have friends and family that use Linux. When I retired from the PC repair business, I actually rotated people into Linux and then put them in front of a guy that would help support them. Yeah. It's, it's here. And that was years ago. So it's – it's. At, I mean just factually speaking, he's incorrect. Yeah, that's period. true. And
0: it, it's, it's funny it just how is. as geeks, like people yeah. just like they see the world through the geek lens yeah. and it's like, well <laughs> – yeah. Is I'm it sorry, ready for Windows you Power users? No. Uh, if you can't use SolidWorks, then it's not good as a desktop you know exactly. and then it's like yeah. that's true for a certain set of people right. exactly <laughs> uh, all right well last yep. feedback uh rick comes in he says uh, hey guys i just want to say thanks for the DigitalOcean coupon i set up my mumble server using debian and it's running great most websites nice. that sell mumble servers do it by the person one site sells a 15 slot server for six dollars a month well with DigitalOcean, it's unlimited as long as you don't hit the one terabyte cap this works out great for myself most of the time with only a few friends but sometimes we have about 20 people on there He says, but with my horribly inaccurate calculations, one terabyte is way more than enough for my usage. And he's got a question here about monitoring bandwidth usage on the Debian server. so I'll answer that here in a second. But first, that seemed like the perfect opportunity to tell you about our second sponsor this week, DigitalOcean. Now, what is DigitalOcean? Well, if you haven't figured it out like our uh, writer, what was his name? Ron, right? Yeah, Rick. Oh, Rick. Rick. If you haven't figured it out like Rick, then DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Users can create a cloud server in 55 seconds. Now, me? I'm forty-seven seconds. So you know, <laughs> you let me know if you beat if you beat that. I'm forty-seven. We should, seconds. We should have
1: right. a chart. No, no I don't That's think
0: right. anybody's gonna crush the champ, Matt. <laughs> but we'll see. I'm Batman. Okay. Okay. All right, he says. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to let you know that they have credible, incredible pricing too. Pricing plans start only five dollars per month. Five hundred twelve megs of RAM on that rig, a twenty gigabyte SSD, and yes, an SSD really does make a difference. And one CPU with a terabyte of transfer. Hello, a terabyte of transfer. Think about this: for a fixed five dollar cost, you know exactly how much you're going to get, and this is awesome. This is way better than some of the other services that transfer you, that charge you by the bit. And on top of that, they're all over the place. DigitalOcean has data data center locations in New York, San Francisco, and Amsterdam. They have a simple interface with an intuitive control panel, and the power users can replicate that bad boy with their own straightforward API. But even better, DigitalOcean loves community. They offer a vast collection of tutorials in their community section on their site. And if you submit an article that gets published to the community, DigitalOcean will pay you 50 bones per piece. Think about that. So if there's probably a good chance, given our audience, that you guys know how to set something up on a CentOS box, on a Ubuntu box, on a Debian rig. You can write up a how-to on something. You can submit it to DigitalOcean. $50 credit. I mean, think about, like, at $5 per month, that's going to get you a super awesome VPS for a long time. And by the way, the back-end technology on DigitalOcean servers is the tops. Based on KVM based on any uh, predefined droplet you want to deploy, or you can create a machine from whole cloth like I did. You have DNS management. You can resize a server in a single click backup snapshots, two-factor authentication, one app, one-click application installs. And with that community, you can get up and going at no time. And then you have your own box that you have root access to. You have root login. You know exactly what's installed on this machine. And by the way, uh, if you want to do some testing check out the, where you deploy it on, you can also have a private network, which is really great to have uh, maybe a front-end machine that communicates to a back-end machine over a private network that gets you a little extra security there. So like combine that. that with their amazing hardware. It's the best way to go. And by the way, to our, our writer, Rick, they have bandwidth graphs. So if you go into your account summary a little bit later, they'll tell you about your usage and stuff like that too. So there's a lot of reasons to use DigitalOcean. So here's what you need to do to get, a five, or to get a $10 credit, which if you use the $5 machine like I've got, that's going to get you two months of DigitalOcean for free <laughs> hello just use the promo code linux unplugged january when you check out linux unplugged january all one word linux unplugged january and you'll get that ten dollar credit try it out for a couple of months there's tons of uses for it we keep hearing about them from our audience all the time and if you've got a great use for a DigitalOcean machine let us hear about it i love hearing these stories so well, a big I think thank you, you to
1: DigitalOcean. stop and think about it i mean it's like look okay so by not taking advantage of this you're actually losing money because they're giving you two free months I mean, really, you're 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 really losing out on a great situation. It's so
0: slick. And when you I like, know uh, when you when you get up there and you got your own machine and you're you have root access to it and you can you can keep coming up with new scenarios like, well, maybe I want to try EverPad up there. Maybe I want to put a BitTorrent Sync machine up there. Maybe I want to try Mumble up there. And then, oh, you know what? I got to go up to the next machine. It's like another it's just it's a very they have a very simple pricing structure plan that's very easy to understand. And every step of the way, you know exactly how much you're going to be paying and exactly what you're going to get. So I love it. I've been using it. I'm going to keep using it for even more services that we're going to be doing here at Jupiter Broadcasting, uh, which you'll be hearing more about very soon. Sweet, I know it is really sweet. So I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to pull Aaron back down into uh, our private little room here, and uh, hopefully he wasn't in the middle of uh, saying something to the to the group. But uh, so Aaron, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, you. You got kind of fired up when you were watching uh, the episode that we did recently in defense of gnome. And I think you really called me out on something that I was actually sort of kicking myself for, and that was sort of the celebration of new and shiny and rebuilt to have a rebuilt purpose. And you sort of brought up this counterpoint and said, well, what about what about this methodology of refinement and and, and evolution and working with something and staying with it for a while and building on top of a platform, building on top of something? And that isn't almost, in, in some cases, really even respected in, in the community. What, do you, what are your thoughts? And you share a little bit about what got you fired up.
2: Sure. So just to make it clear for everybody right at the top, I'm, I'm not wearing my KDE hat at all here. Um, this is really me with my free software must rule the world one day hat on. Okay. Um, and it's this exact idea that, yeah, you know, new and shiny is awesome. And, and yeah, I mean, it is new and shiny is awesome, <laughs> but there's cost to everything that we do new and shiny. Um, every rewrite, every new adventure um, comes with a cost. So when you take a bunch of applications and you decide we're just going to redo them all, um, you end up with you know being able to get the you know first ninety percent of functionality or eighty percent of functionality fairly quickly, and then you spend you know the rest of the ninety percent of the development time getting the ten to twenty percent that people actually need for it to become a a reasonable application. And when we toss these things aside, you know, applications that work and that have have reached this point of maturity, um, what we might do is we might deliver something with marginally better visuals or a slightly better workflow. But in the meantime, our users tend to be left with locations that don't have the features. They need, um, and what happens from developers' point of view, who, who works on free software quite a bit, um, there is a, a real constant pressure um, from a lot of people, especially the attention areas of our community. You know, the media and whatnot, to always be producing something new um, and and flashy and cool, and it's it's more reward for promising something wonderful. Um, and starting off by scrapping whatever you have right now. At the same time, we also get our feet held to the fire if it isn't um, stable and if it isn't performant and if it doesn't have the features that people need. Right. Um, you are talking earlier about, you know, is the Linux desktop ready for the average person? Well, it never will be if we keep reinventing things every few years. And so there's this conflict, right? The, these two motivations don't really gel well together. And this is both part of what new free software developers coming into it are, are bred and, and born on. Um, so they come into it with this expectation of, oh, we need to redo things so it's you know, sexy and, and cool or go the other way and be like hyper-conservative. There's no middle ground. Um, and meanwhile, those, those projects that try and hit a middle ground, I think, come under a lot of unnecessary um, pressure on the one hand, but also just get overlooked a lot for... Uh, trying to, you know, going through cycles of innovation, but then also going through longer cycles of stability and support. So, uh,
0: you know, I, I just to kind of abstract this to a level where people would kind of recognize it down to the desktop, I would say, like, for me, uh, I, I do kind of understand what you're saying in the sense that uh, I look at like the GNOME desktop and their reboot has cost them, I believe, not only... Uh, untold users, but years of, of, of basically progress on the desktop. I, I would say that while they've obviously been working very hard, um, it's really now getting to a point where I'm comfortable using it on a daily basis. That wasn't I mean you know that's a, if you look at the years it took to get there that's a big reset and it kind of came at an inappropriate time uh, right when uh, Microsoft was stumbling with Vista there was sort of I've always felt like this golden opportunity where Linux could have succeeded a little bit stronger where you know perhaps if Canonical hadn't rebooted with Unity and Unity was really quite awful at the beginning um, and and if GNOME hadn't restarted with GNOME three which GNOME three oh was really quite unusable at the beginning uh, we might have had a little more traction perhaps so and then you look at it now. Uh, and these projects are getting to a good state, but one of them is about to face another reboot. Uh, and I, I see there's projects where sometimes there'd be value in starting over. And then there's other projects where I see it, it, it almost feels a little sad because it's so much effort and time will be lost while they rebuild and retrace things that they have already once completed and already once figured out.
2: Exactly. And, and when these projects get to the point of, okay, finally, they're usable again. I can use them on a daily basis. Have they really progressed um the technology sufficiently to offset that that cost and i think with the wild abandon that we embrace new and shiny with uh, at times we tend to destroy that i mean the the biggest problem i had with something like pulse audio for instance was not that we needed a non crappy audio stack but that it was pushed onto a you know the user community when it wasn't ready Right. By, you know, it can be clearly seen by years of troubles that people had. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was literally a distribution that shipped where the volume slider didn't do anything. As crappy as the Linux audio stack was, it finally worked for most people. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so we seem to be, as you said, picking really bad times to reinvent things and doing it for what will deliver marginal benefit, if any, at the end of the day
0: yeah I see here's the thing. is this uh, it's it's this interesting culture that's driven. and I feel like it's more than just one thing that attributes to this. but, from a media production standpoint, like from the Linux Action Show, people are going to be much more interested in something brand new that they that they want to learn about than uh, sort of retracing how great it is that every application I use under KDE has a proper notification icon on the system tray. Like, that's an example of how staying stable and just having something and defining the way it works and having keeping it that way for years benefits end users, but it doesn't make for a good segment in a, in an ep, in a podcast and it doesn't make for a good article on a blog. And so I do not I, I do agree that that is driving the conversation conversation in one direction but at the same time that's because that's what the consumers of that content want to hear about right and the developers that are going into these projects they want to they don't want to work on the old guys old busted code they want to come up with their new hot concepts and and spring those on the world so that's their motivation so it seems to be like this multi uh multi-dimensional problem that just sort of is maybe human nature
2: no agreed and and so on the one hand we need to not reward those developers who just want to come in with a wrecking ball um, or at least reward them a lot less for doing that if they're not bringing any real large offsetting value to it the other side of it is yeah, how do we how do we present um, mature projects as, as interesting um and it, I agree it requires a little more um, positioning and thinking and and you know, Most free software projects and most people involved in free software are not great self-promoters and marketers. And so, yeah, I completely get that a new is an easier story. It writes itself. Um, On the other hand, if you look at, you know, so a project that I've been involved with for years was uh, Plasma, um, which most people know as a desktop environment. And it gets to the point where it's mature enough that we can actually start branching off and doing things like Plasma where we can bring it devices and this this whole convergence story that has been really exciting for people around unity is actually where we were three or four years ago um now the question is why doesn't that why didn't that story get out in a more interesting way why doesn't it um, keep people's attention um and i'm sure there's probably things that you know I could have done uh, differently or better to make it more interesting but on the other hand I also think that there's there's a there's a, a, a kind of a an expectation that you can only tell a story once. Um, and I think that the convergence story, for example, is one that has a lot of legs if we can keep ourselves kind of moderately entertained um, and interested. And companies like Google, for instance, um, there's a bunch of people talking pre-show about things like Chromebooks. Right. Um, and what you know, we, we don't realize with these things is that, or I don't think consciously, is that they bang on the same boring message for like five years before people get it. Yeah. And when people get it, it's new and exciting to them, but you have to bang those old messages through. Um, And I think that that hurts, you know, the free software adoption as well, because we don't have the patience to bang the message through that usually takes two, three years. Um, And so what happens is we get projects that are less interesting to people. And until someone comes along with the wrecking ball and erects the new shiny that is not usable anymore. Um, we don't. they don't get the attention, and so we kind of catch ourselves in the spot. You also have these
0: companies that um, uh, some people in the development communities idolize, uh, Apple, where you know, you'll know you see Apple from time to time completely reboot a product, even if it's a high-end product like Final Cut or the Mac Pro, into something brand new and just say, suck it, you take it or you don't take it, and this is the way it is. And I think in some weird, creepy way, that messages to people that that's an okay thing to do because they see Apple doing it and some people hold that in some some level of regard. Uh, and so it it seems to me too, that there is a bit of, uh, commercial, the, the, the commercial companies like Google and Apple are also sort of driving this mentality a bit. And it, it takes a certain wisdom to sort of see past that and be still motivated to work on something that is tried and true. And how do you incentivize somebody to want to do that?
2: Well, I think that most tried and true software, um, kind of, how do I say this politely, has areas that suck after a number of years. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, the software doesn't stand up to the test of time, you know, if you don't change it. Um, and so right now I'm involved in in rewriting one small part of, of a project that I'm involved with um, that's, um, yeah, it, it, it's a rewrite of one small component. And it's very interesting and it's it will have, important, it will bring important value to the users. It's not a rewrite of everything. So I think on the one hand, you know, finding ways to create a culture of, you don't have to rewrite everything, make your thing, make your your software, you know, a little bit more modular with a more forward-looking design, which is something that we need to teach each other how to do. Um, And then, you know, you can do incremental, important evolutionary work where you can talk about it. I mean, my blogs in the last two weeks have featured quite a few times this this component that I'm rewriting and people are finding it very interesting and exciting and it's done in a very low risk way. Um, The other thing is is that there are tons of topics that free software does not touch, does not cover. Um, We don't need to be rewriting the image viewer application every two years. Let that let that that uh, topic area go, and let's find the other eight million application categories that we have no answer for, and create a new shiny there. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> um, you know, instead of just chasing our tails. So, but maybe that's just me. Maybe we actually do have a complete software catalog, but last time I checked, we didn't.
0: Well, I, so uh, I guess. So if you if you move if if you kind of zoom out a little bit and you look at like the whole like free software ecosystem, there's certain aspects of like Linux that have Linux itself have had have had pretty even curved development and and stability and also innovation. The Linux kernel has then been adopted by every company under the sun to power their product and i think that speaks to sort of what you're talking about when you have a group of people that just stay at it and keep building it don't keep throwing it all out and restarting again it gives people certain assurances but because that hasn't happened really at the user space as much we haven't seen a stabiliza- we haven't seen a stabilizing there and so you know you see these we had a we had a great uh, thread uh, in the uh, Linux Action Show subreddit saying, why has Linux on the desktop failed? You know, he looks at, uh, this was uh, Ersk in the the chat room, he looks at the market shares. Linux is at 1.73% according to netmarketshare.com. And he says, regardless of the distro, uh, it's at 1.73%, while XP is 12 years later, still at 29% market share. One of the reasons this could be the popularity of XP in Asia, of course, and things like that, but... Honestly, XP was this quote-unquote stable in terms of it's an easy target for developers to quantify, develop for. And I wonder if perhaps... Remember when Miguel Itacaza wrote that the problem with the Linux desktop was always changing and always always incompatibilities, always being brought in? I wonder if he sort of nailed it in a sense where like, what we really need is something... Now, I know I'm just going to sound like I'm blowing smoke up the KDE project, but we need something like KDE4.x that is just... It's what you see is what you get for years. Like it's like this for, it's snapshotted like this for years, much like Unity will be in the uh, current, L, in the next LTS release. It's, 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 does Linux need a little XPification right now?
2: I, I think so. And this can be done without um, ossifying or, or fossilizing things either. Now you brought the Linux kernel. I completely agree with what you said about it and why it's successful. The thing, is, but the Linux kernel is like this massive constant churn Um, So it's not like they're sitting still and and moribund. They've managed to marry the two. So a really good example, I think, of this in the user space um, is so we've had, you know, the whole uh, many years of UDEV, UDISCs, um, basically the hot plug and and disk Mm -hmm. management uh, facing the user space side has gone through a number of revolutions um, and not always, uh, in fact, at each break, it was a radical API change. Um, so what the uh, KDE developers did uh, was they decided to create an API that did what application developers could wrap their head around, because the lower-level user-space APIs were also pretty hardcore um, for the you know the average person who just wants to write you know a cool game or something. Right. So they created a slightly simplified API, but they, they masked what was going on down below. And this, yes, it opened up the ability to port to Windows and Mac, and now iOS and Android, um, but when the you know, the Udisc thing came in, while um, other desktop environments like XFCE, for instance, had to do a lot of work to catch up their applications and, and rewrite them, no KD application had to line a code. A new backend was written um, for that framework called Solid, and everything just continued working. Even more magical, no one got left behind because the people who were using the old stuff used the old back end, and the people using the new stuff used the new back end, and no one was stranded on an old version. So it is possible to do, um, but it takes forethought, and I think that Miguel de Acaso was correct in his criticism or his critique, um, except that we do have projects and communities out there that do exactly what he said we should be doing, mm-hmm. and the challenge we face is that the community as a whole, on the one hand, I don't think recognizes that. Um, you know, when someone who does something like Solid, there's a certain community or group of people in the community who hurl stones, saying you're just writing, you know, yet another abstraction layer, and you know you should be writing to the Linux um, stack directly, and that's the way to go. Um, and so they, there's like a popular, a popular backlash against doing the responsible thing. And I think as a community, we need to take stock of what really matters. And if we do want to get that stable, approachable, um, user land, uh, and especially at the GUI level, we need to start valuing that kind of work mm-hmm. that isn't very glamorous, but pays off in the long run. And we need to start supporting those people and the people who don't do that, Maybe we should say, look, I love you guys and you guys are doing free software, which is freaking awesome, but you know what? We need you to do it responsibly. And so we're going to go over here and support these people that are, are looking at five, 10 years down the road. Um, and I think if we did that, if we shifted what we value, everybody would start doing things a little more responsibly. And then I think the whole new shiny thing would resolve itself because people tend to do by and large that which is rewarded.
0: Matt, let me ask you the million-dollar question, and then I'll open it up to the mumble room. Uh, How do we shift the end user's value, which would hopefully then influence developers and media coverage? How do we shift the value from new and shiny to tried and true?
1: Well, I think the opportunity definitely lays with XP. The problem is, is that the end user looks at XP, not realizing the fact that it's going to be a major problem here in the coming months, and doesn't see a reason to switch. But I think if you speak to the fact that they could potentially continue to use the hardware they already have without having to uh, invest in new hardware, I think money is really going to be the sweet spot.
0: Yeah, I think you – so the point you're driving at here is like there's a certain class of user that absolutely values tried and true. And then there's a certain class of user, the more sophisticated user, who maybe is a little more on the I want the shiny. Right.
1: Exactly. That's exactly it. And I and I think that you know it's really hard to hit that nail on the head. But I think the biggest problem Linux has for both groups is they really suck at marketing. I mean, like I can't stress that enough. They have this amazing product that <laughs> yeah. is drive driven through very much an echo chamber world. I mean, it's, it yeah. really is. And it's a, it's a shame because like I introduce it to people and they're just blown away as to why the hell they've never heard yeah, of this it's, before. Yeah, it's, yeah. And they have an Android phone. They have no idea. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's interesting. So it's going to be tough to say for sure, but I definitely say that it's going to be... Uh, it, the real opportunity for growth is going to come from the people that are using XP. I think that's really where it is. The new and shiny people, honestly, I don't know. Maybe they're like, always going
0: to want new and shiny.
1: Yeah, it's like trying to herd cats. I don't, I don't know about that. So... <laughs>
2: Well, I think we can I think we can do both. but I do completely agree with Matt with you, Matt, when you say, um that you know people who want the tried and true, that's, yeah, you know, how, how do we market to them? and that's the gap, the marketing bit. um and this is kind of what tweaked me when I listened to your show and I, I, I I'm often like one or two weeks behind that I've been <laughs> on on the uh, Linux action show <laughs> to catch up. and it's what tweaked me about it, right was, It was like, ah, you guys are the people who market us best because we do suck at it. Full stop. Um, And so when I see people who would be our best and brightest um, in terms of getting the message out of marketing, you know, rewarding really And for good intentions, I think, you know, the new and shiny. Because we all want to support and and push forward everything. I mean, nobody wants to be the grumpy guy who goes, well, you're really putting your heart and soul into this, and I can see that, and you're doing this free software, but mm, really? Um, No one wants to be that guy. I get it. But if we want to succeed, there's some level of responsibility that needs to come in, and the people who do the best marketing for us, who is not, it's not me and the other software developers, right? We need you know, you guys too, and and not just you too, but, you know, the the, uh, media in general who follows free software to do it. And what goes even one step further of pain and heartache is when I read certain people in the media who cover free software, basically going fine. Okay, great. The free software projects will never get together. And again, this is a systems thing because we've been rewarding the the wrong things all along. Fine. Then now I'm just going to say that Google with their services are where it will be. And to me, that feels like just running the white flag straight up the flagpole Mm -hmm. um, and unnecessarily. And I I just I'd love to find some way to break that feedback loop so that we can start rewarding um, strategically useful uh, behavior and then getting that message out to those people who would most benefit from it, such as the XP uh, uh, crowd. It's not an easy thing that, you know, I realize that's a gigantic um, yeah, of Thing to take on, but I, I think that's the path of success lies in that direction somehow.
0: Very good. I, that's yeah. A, that's a good point. It's well taken on on my end too, because it's something that I it's it's definitely on my radar because. Uh, I always cringe a little bit when, like you say, I have that same feeling. It's like, okay, uh, it's good that you're doing this, and I really appreciate the hard work. And you know, uh, especially in the in the gnome case, it's like for years everybody's been so hard on them. It's like, okay, they've finally gotten it to a sta- to a point that it's okay, it's worth talking about now. It's really gotten good. But at the same time, like in the back of my mind, it's like, uh, you know, I'm I do understand that I'm sort of encouraging, like I called it a form of consumerism, and I'm not generally comfortable with those all those kinds of things. But before we go any further, I want to bring in the main virtual lug here and ask these guys if anyone in the room here wants to to, uh, raise defense or uh, comment. Go ahead, Riley.
4: Yes, I have a couple issues with all of Aaron's um, things. Like, everybody is guilty of beautification. Even KDE is guilty of it. Remember how bad KDE 4.0 and 4.1 was when it came out? Like, it happened, right, when Windows 7 came out, too, because they were trying to I mean, they look almost exactly Well, I, I actually alike. think
0: that's a good distinction to make is there are times where maybe, you know, all things considered, it is worth retooling and, and rebooting.
4: also, people always have a choice with Linux. Like, the reason why there's the LXDs mm-hmm. out there and the XFCs out there. And they'll be around for a long time to come. And let these newer, fancier projects keep going. People can use them if they want to. The like, for me, for example,
3: right. Those, I, right. awkward transition periods.
4: Yeah, like yeah,
3: so, uh, XP was great, it was stable, but then they hadn't moved on, so they created Vista. Vista was awful, but that led to seven, and seven uh was a huge improvement over XP, and so I think that's the same thing that you that Ubuntu did between um ten point ten and twelve point oh four. That's the same thing KDE did, same thing Gnome did. Alright, oh, well, hold on there, hold on right there. Wait, yeah, that about KDE uh, wait, Vista wait, and nope, seven. No,
0: nope, hold on, wait. Let Aaron respond to uh, the first comment about uh about KD rebooting and things like that, and then we'll move on to the next topic.
2: Yeah, sure. So first off, I, I completely agree that um, the results of 4041 were not what we all desired, and we've learned from that, and we're doing the next major release, the 5.0, extraordinarily differently as a result. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's learning curves for everybody. Um, that said, the reason to take on such a revamp um, was, or the choice to do it, was was only taken after a very extensive um, examination of the code base we had at the time um, and where we could go with it in the future. And on the desktop side, applications were a completely separate issue, but the desktop shell itself um, was at an evolutionary dead end. And looking at what we could do with it um, and to move it to the next step was more work and even more disruptive than doing, you know, what we did with with the reboot with, with plasma. Um, I wish it would have been different, but that was a necessary thing, and that needs to happen. We probably have the the ability to do that uh, afford or afford to do that maybe once in ten to fifteen years. Um,
4: well, I which think is exactly that- what either. Um, Because even to this day, I'm on Intel Graphics, and I still had issues with K-Win rendering effects. <laughs> right,
0: this is, I don't want to make this about uh, tech support. I wanted to go back to Tyler. Uh, Tyler, were you going to make the point that essentially 7 was an iteration of Vista? And so Vista, in a sense, was a reboot, and 7 was the...
5: Con- I, I just I was going to say that a lot of people seem to forget that Vista was like a six NT 6.0 release. Mm-hmm. Microsoft didn't magically do anything with 7 to make it better. It was by the time 7 got released, all yeah, the hardware remotely- software support was already there for the NT6 series. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's, that's mm-hmm.
2: true. So so
4: I, had a good back really good security, uh, if you remember. Well, SP1 did.
2: So if I could just add a little mm-hmm. thing there. Now, the, the uh, feedback that we got after the 4.0 release was um, anything but gentle. And... While unpleasant, it did have the positive effect of making us seriously consider um, how uh, the lightness and the responsibility that goes into making such decisions. Um, And I think that in that sense, the kind of feedback that was offered, like, oh, that sucked, um, that's useful. And and I think it would be much more useful if that was kind of, you know, maybe not as brutal, because I think that a lot of it went over the top. Um, but that kind of critique, honest critique, is is useful and needs to be taken on. Because if if we don't look at it as oh, you're just criticizing me horribly, um, but this is this is feedback, I need to take this on. Let's move forward. Um, if we can all engage in that way, then we can actually be more honest and more critical in a non-confrontational way with each other. And then again, that that moves I think the developers towards a path of actually being able to develop more responsibly so
0: okay i had a, I wanted to change gears i'm done talking about windows uh but i wanted to ask a question to the room uh that was uh that i asked matt earlier and see if you guys had a take on it so aaron i think made the astute point that if we could encourage the celebration of tried and true and developing rock solid platforms and and sticking with them and and Encouraging developers to want to contribute to that, encouraging users to be interested in that. Does anybody have any ideas on how you actually shift people's values and perceptions on that? Anybody have a, a throw? How the how, maybe like a an idea to start that process? Uh, well, I think when we talk about uh, mature projects and, and what Michael Dominic from of Radio calls, uh, quote unquote, the new hotness, I think we need to uh, take a, uh, I think
4: we need a balance between the two. We need, I think, uh, uh, an ideology and
3: approach that uh, both uh, uh, gives people some something shiny, something new to play with, but also has that reliability and maturity that people uh, expect from from their software and their computers. I think when we look at uh, software in general and DEs especially, I think we also need to have we need to have uh, new features and in, in, uh, integration with modern technologies. You know, we we need to have JavaScript, we need to have HTML5, we need to have all those things. But we also need stability. We also need uh, uh that uh, not, uh a lack to, of critical, critical bugs yeah
0: to interrupt if i could what you're what you're basically sure. saying is we need to have developers who are experienced enough and savvy enough to need to know that they need to build Something you know, massive that they can build upon for years that will be that will have the plumbing and 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 meet the requirements for stuff they haven't even considered yet. And that sounds Mm -hmm. to me like we're asking too much of people that are just contributing to free projects during their free time. That is true,
4: that is true, because a lot of times developers do not know what the people really want. (laughs) Because I mean, Uh, I just think at least least it really makes you scratch your head, especially like with um. Uh, I want to say it, but Unity and me are like, like are you actually yeah. using it right now? It's like,
3: think like that. Unity like, yeah. Use what you develop and go from there. Like, you have yeah. to use it. Yeah. Yeah. it. Um, go ahead, Poppy. Go ahead, Poppy. I might be able to speak from a little bit of authority of the Unity side. Um, I spent the day today in an office of 100 plus people, all using Unity all day for all kinds of business activities, developers, kernel developers, developers, um, Designers, finance people, right. HR, and R runs Linux. A lot of
0: times, it's Unity on Ubuntu, and uh, you see it in you in, you know an everyday setting,
3: right. And and what I found pleasing was not only that when I left the office and got the train home, I sat next to some random dude and asked him what game he was playing on his iPad because it looked like fun, and it turns out he happened to be an Ubuntu user as well, <laughs> and told and told yeah. me he he'd been playing with Ubuntu on a mobile phone and playing with Ubuntu on a desktop, and so. That kind of, uh, rekindled my, my thoughts that actually despite how much flack we get for Unity and how much flack we get for whatever we do in terms of licenses and, uh, packages we pre-install or don't pre-install, there are actually plenty of normal everyday users out there who continue sure. to use this stuff. Right. Not yeah. just Unity, but, for yeah.
0: And they have a whole different set of expectations, and they have a whole and a whole different set of yeah, um, pre uh, uh, preconceptions before they go in and use a computer. And you know, to really sort of uh, underscore the point, there is I I, I find it what I find u- amazing about it is now it's almost like I when when we first did runs Linux, it was a really big deal that all these computers in this office space would be running Linux. Now we're finding out about it because well, of course, it's just a foregone conclusion that's what we installed and there's the desktop. It's like not even brought up. It's not even a big mention because it just seems obvious. And I mean, really, it's like seven out of 10 times those are Unity desktops. And they're probably running a long term support version, uh, too, on top of that. So there really is a you know a good degree of stability. And really, a lot of what we're talking about is it's, it sort of changes when you change the context. When you change the context to Ubuntu 1204 LTS, now all of a sudden, you essentially have what we're talking about for four or five years, which is a pretty good length of time. Uh, probably about the appropriate length of time. So I, 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 it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's this really complex issue because there's a lot of development actively happening at the front, and then there can be silos of stability that take place that are not really uh, um, considered in this context, I guess.
4: I guess my main point to take away from all this is my main selling point of Linux is you always have a choice. There's always one thing to fall back onto if something else isn't working.
0: I feel, like that's a, I feel like that's a trope that, uh, we, that we lean on to say, well, even if we don't make software that's actually good enough to meet the expectations of users, we have a lot of software that's not good enough that you can choose from.
4: It, it's and, not <laughs> necessary, though, because, I mean, XFCE, like, if you don't like GNOME 3, like, most people go to XFCE, and it's very good. No, no but,
2: but, but But jumping oh, around yeah, from course. one solution to another is not a solution for the average person. The average individual yeah, is true. not going to hop from desktop to desktop environment. If, you, if you're if you going to deliver to users, you're making a commitment to them. Now, I, I agree that the, the fact is like, oh, great, there's a bunch of people using Unity. That's almost uninteresting. The question ought to be, are those people using Unity because it's E or had there had they stuck with um GNOME, for instance, two or whatever, uh, would they also be using that? So is it the differentiation point Unity or not? And if it isn't, um and I'm not trying to pick on Unity, I think this is true of every single out there. Right. Well like um, so that always not, says like default is king, it's just um, whatever ships yep, is I, default. Yeah. Right, I think, uh, uh, so, so I if, like, if, I if, think if, if the game changer, up. so the game changer is not Unity, then this is this is resources and time that we're not using wisely.
0: Well, the, I and think the, also, the, I'll go ahead, Poppy.
3: Sorry, it also goes back to what Aaron was saying about marketing. And whilst I agree with Aaron that there is grassroots marketing that people like Chris and Matt do on this show and others, um, and lugs and loco teams and other special interest groups, there is also the very great power that comes from selling machines pre-installed with, you know, whatever operating system. And brand. Has. And, and that. The that Dell brand, the System76
0: brand. There's exactly, the power behind that brand.
3: Exactly. And, and so they you can be forgiven for uh, not focusing your attention on the older computers that have a, you know, a very low amount of memory and a, um, a single core CPU because those don't get you that, marketing eyeballs what gets you the marketing eyeballs is the shiny in the shop and the online store and the what's the latest greatest multi-core processor with you know gigabytes of memory and an ssd that's what gets you that marketing um, or really look at push. the ubuntu
2: edge right the ubuntu edge got a lot of for a constantly to get there
5: i think uh, one point that really should be brought up is i we should be striving for stable and solid software regardless of what time of year, what releases we're looking at, because OpenSUSE could arbitrarily say, okay, this is going to be an evergreen release, and it's not as scheduled as Ubuntu's LTS releases.
0: Right, yeah. yeah. It's always something I think, and I think some of this, too, is uh, there are certain things that are going to get to a maturity. GNOME is going to reach a certain level of maturity. Obviously, KDE is at a certain level of maturity, and uh, in time, um, uh, the new versions of Unity will be at a certain level of maturity, and all of this uh, is really, it's 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 sort of getting our ducks in a row, and I think maybe this might be a problem that a couple of years down the road is not nearly as pronounced. Maybe. Now, I you'll still say... have a lot of small apps that are changing all the time that are, I mean, we could argue about, user-end apps that need to stabilize, but I think, like, big picture-wise, we might not really be talking about this in a couple of years.
5: Hmm. If I may, oh. really quick, uh, here's, here's my position on this, and I, I, I think it just needs to be said that we have LTS for the people that want stability and they want to work in an environment where everything will be expected and everything will stay the same whereas we have like the arch community where we work on these type of things and we we develop the future for the LTS projects so in a sense the people that do like the development work in the future will also help the people that have businesses that have, or just want to have just a stable computer at home. And so I think the best way to go look at this is that to have a community where we re- we proactively respond to the effects that we need to have for people that want to try Linux or want to have Linux as an everyday product and not and not have to worry about, like, problems in the future, it's I, – I think we there's no need to over – Overthink it. Overthink it, yeah.
0: yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, last final words, gentlemen. Uh, Aaron, you I, got
3: – oh, go I, go I, I have a question for uh, Popey, actually. um, I'd be interested to get his perspective as a canonical employee – what exactly are the purposes of the non-LTS Ubuntu releases? Are those supposed to be like testing All right, all right, all right hold on. We'll, we'll do
0: that. We'll do that in post show because I got to wrap up. Uh, hold on, Chris. Chris can can yeah, I get one Q- thing? In go order? ahead. Q five.
2: Uh, one thing that I've noticed at we as a Linux community sometimes don't wrap our brains around is that we have multiple levels of development. Um, myself working with the Puppy Linux project, you know, dist- distro development is one step removed from. Um, say desktop environment development and I think sometimes we try to lump all development into one bucket and it's that's a problem in my mind because as a distro developer most of the time I'm limited by what upstream desktop environment developers give out so we we all need to work together but people also need to realize that there are decisions that are made at the application layer that then the distribution layer has to then try to deal with
5: Right, that makes
0: sense. Uh, Aaron, were you going to say something?
2: Yeah, so I was just going to say, in response to what you said, Chris, about uh, you know maybe in two years this won't be a problem. Um, if, if that was the case, we wouldn't be in the problem now because we'd actually achieved a position of, re- of relative stability, featurefulness, and then everyone went and, and did a bunch of new things, um, in large part because... Uh, people observed, or, or felt they observed, that to be relevant, to be on that shiny new machine and that mm-hmm. new hardware, you had to reinvent and rewrite, and and you know, and now it's just a cycle of constant rewriting. I don't think that, or I think that if we do not change um, how we interact with our expectations, that this will just repeat over and over and over again, mm-hmm. um, and we will that will only have so many more kicks of this can before. We don't have any more.
0: I so. completely agree. And I, I want to I button it right there because I think that it's a good warning. As somebody who's also been following this for a long time, I, you, know, you guys know I've expressed my feelings on this. Matt, you and I have talked uh-huh. a few times about how we feel like there's been some missed opportunities. And I think Aaron just yes. nailed it. So it's a warning. It's something to think about. It, uh, and you can uh, send us in your feedback by going over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, clicking the contact link, and then choosing Linux Unplugged from the dropdown. Or even better, you could join us live. Over at JBLive.tv. TV, go in our chat room, do bang mumble, and guess what? You'll get our mumble server, and you can join our virtual lug and have your voice right here in this very show. Now, Linux Unplugged is live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific. You can go over to JupiterBroadcasting.com/calendar, and then you can uh, just get that in your local time zone. Matt, we're going to get to that how-to on Sunday. Remember, I was talking about the remote desktop thing. Oh, Montgomery? right on. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do that this Sunday. Uh, I, we might do a slightly shortened show because it's Super Bowl Sunday.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, right? Might as well that That could
0: be a problem. We'll see, but we'll figure it out. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. If we don't see you on Sunday, we'll see you right back here next Tuesday.